Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I welcome Associate Professor Betna Angueno onto the show. Professor Ngueno is an educator in the African American and African Studies Department at UC Davis, as well as the author of Turf Wars Territory Citizenship in the Contemporary State and a co-author of Developing Global Leaders Insights from African Case Studies. She has a PhD in Cultural Anthropology from John Hopkins University, an MA in Anthropology from Stanford, and a Bachelor's of Science in Agricultural Science and Management from University of California, Davis. Her career has covered a number of interests such as cultural anthropology, the Indian Oceans region, race and ethnicity, and others. To discuss some of these interests growing up in Nairobi, her journey to UC Davis as a student, her current work, and more. Now, here's my conversation with Professor Nguyeno. I haven't seen you in almost a year. Uh, how has this weird time we're in right now been for you? Well, so it's been quite a bizarre year. I left in March um, to uh, to having a short leave to look after my dad, who's unwell, and um, and I got stuck in Kenya. And I got stuck in Kenya, and I arrived two days before all our, the airport shut in Kenya, and um, everything locked down. And it was kind of locked down until around August. And um, although lockdown is not as much lockdown as in Europe or things like that, but Anyway, so I was stuck in, 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 in Nairobi. Nairobi, of course, is where I do my research. However, the archives weren't open <laughs> and you couldn't go and interview anybody. So it was completely bizarre. Um, it was uh, very odd. I couldn't do research. I was teaching online uh, virtually. So that was interesting because that was at, you know, one of the classes was at 10 p.m. and the other was at 1 a.m., uh, but that, that in the end worked really nicely. Um, uh, I managed to understand the technology finally <laughs> and then um, also managed to uh, have um, try and add some things in to make people um, a little less bored while being taught virtually, mm. uh, including different kind of headscarves every day. No fun. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if they noticed it. But I really tried. But then I began to run out of, you know, scarves in my house. And I honestly did not buy anything in a year. So um, <laughs> now it's interesting. I think you're, you're looking at about 9.30 where you are right now, right? Right now it's 9.30. Yes, 9.30 p.m. So is your sleep schedule just wrecked right now, having to still teach? When I was teaching, yes. Um, I'm not teaching right now, okay. so it's not as bad. But when I was teaching, I was completely wrecked, although my problem is at the equator in particular, and maybe it's partly Kenya, it's night and day are very obvious because it's not as lit as in the U.S. There's not as much light at night. So I always wake up at 6 a.m. I always, it's, I can't help it. So that's the morning. It's always the same. It's always at the same time at the equator. And so my, I was just really, really tired. Really tired. <laughs> Just two days out of the week, I was not super functional um, because of working at night. And I still find that once in a while, I, you know, I start though I'm very tired mm -hmm. because I expect to be teaching. 
Um, going back to like, I'm very curious about how you got to where you are. Like, where did you grow up? What did what was your childhood like? Okay, so I grew up in Nairobi, um, and um, I went to. Um, how to describe how my childhood was like? That's such an interesting question. Um, I grew up in Nairobi in an area of Nairobi that was that used to be like government housing, but was slowly cha- changing to private housing as well. So it was a pretty nondescript area without a character and um, no actually neighborhood schools there. I went to a public um, uh, primary school that was actually the first multiracial school in Kenya. And it was kind of super fun. It was it, it had a very active uh, PTA, and so it was uh, we had a lot of things that maybe some other public schools didn't have. And I ended up going to a Catholic girls' school, which I hated, and <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of like a major shock. And then um, I had wanted to apply. Um, to go to university in the U.S. because we had had an attempted coup in Kenya and all our universities were shut just as I was graduating high school. And I didn't want to wait for a year to go to university. So I applied to go to university in the U.S. And I got in, funnily enough, at UC Davis, which is where I did my undergrad. And I studied agricultural science and management, which is very, very far from my later studies of anthropology and what I teach in African-American and African studies. Uh, what made you, what drew you to Davis? Was it that you got in or what was it specifically just like a place that you thought could be the one? So, you know, what's so weird. Um, in those days you had to look up like universities in a big catalog or whatever book and you had to go to like a U.S. cultural center to do that. And I wanted to study agriculture so I looked up a bunch of, of universities that studied uh, that that uh, yeah that where you could study agriculture. I was so sure I was going to be a farmer. I dreamt I always wanted to be a farmer, but anyway, that dream is now gone. Um, but um, I had applied at Cornell and at University of Arizona, and I got in at all three. And then I sat there and I had no idea. My family thought. Um, they, they knew nothing about the West Coast of the U.S. Um, they had been to the East Coast. Um, and that my dad and mom actually had studied in um, the East Coast. And so they thought everyone was crazy in California, which is a kind of... <laughs> so, and running around shooting guns or something. Anyway, and so they were very worried about California. And I couldn't... Um, I had no idea. I had no idea. I'd never seen the places. I had no idea about America. I didn't know what it looked like. or I couldn't tell the difference. And I flipped a coin, and I ended up with Davis. And I'm so happy I ended up with Davis. Every time I think of a Cornell winter, it was between Cornell and Davis. Yeah. And every time I think about a Cornell winter, I was just like, oh, I'm so happy I went to Davis. I really like California. And I had a fantastic education at Davis. So I was very, very happy. I love because I have family who's not in California and I, I even though like there's a lot of TV and stuff showing other parts of it, I still think there's an idea that California is like surfing Silicon Valley and then like Hollywood and that's kind of it. And I think it's probably more like that uh, out of the country. Is that the case for like your family? 
Probably, you know, I do not know where they got this impression from because usually they're very, very well-read people. <laughs> and they know a lot. I mean, they were journalists. Both my mom and my dad were journalists. Like, they know a lot. About the, or they knew a lot about the U.S. But I think some sort of a stereotype of... I remember this issue of guns in particular of the Western U.S. was in their mind. Um, Silicon Valley wasn't a thing yet, really. Right. And um, maybe maybe Hollywood, I don't really think. My dad is a total fan of movies. He's a complete junkie of movies. So he would he should have been happy. But somehow they just, I think it was more that they had no idea. And they didn't know anyone there. So they didn't, they were worried. They're sending a kid off to somewhere very far away that they knew no one at all. In the East Coast, they could um, have, have, you know, called on people they might have studied with or something like that to to look after me. <laughs> but in, in California, they didn't know anyone. So um, I actually journeyed to California with my mother. Um, and it was, a, it was an interesting journey. We were both totally shocked by the flatness of the land in Davis. <laughs> I remember getting off the plane and just going, what is this place? And, on, and I somehow we ended up in Sacramento. It's just like that drive between Sacramento and Davis. How can a land be this flat? Nairobi is full of mountains and hills. And so we were, we were stunned and, <laughs> and not very happy. I, I didn't get used to it for years. I hated it at first and then got used to it later. But it was, it was, yeah, it was very funny, both my mom and I. And then, you know, later it's uh, um, an environment I kind of like having to bike on flat land, not on, on hilly land. You show up expecting everyone to have guns instead everybody has bikes. That's quite the, yeah, exactly. uh, quite the difference. Very different. <laughs> uh, so you went from agricultural science to cultural anthropology. How did you make that jump? And what like inspired it? Oh, so that's also a funny story. When I when I finished at UC Davis, I was so sure I was never ever 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 going back to university in any form whatsoever, and I was done, done. And my sister convinced me. She said, "You have to take the GRE. You know more now than you'll ever more in a way of thinking than you will later. So you have to take the GREs then." I'm like, "Whatever, I'm going to take them." And then I went back to Kenya, and I started work. <laughs> which going to work in any, any environment will convince you to go back to studying because it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. But I, I worked in an interesting place. It was called the African Center for Technology Studies. And it was, um, at the time, they were doing work on climate change, which they called at that time global warming, and, um, and also on issues to do with patent law, and, and property and those kind of things. And I became very interested. Um, I, I wasn't, as you can see, I wasn't able to get my job as a farmer yet. So I was working in that sort of science technology space. And I became very interested in the sort of scientific arguments for um, global warming. So at that time, the argument was, you know, um, CO2 is causing um, all the environment problems and we need a solution. And this solution, um, the, the CO2 is being caused by developed nations. And this, at this time, it was the US, Europe, and Japan. And the solution was don't cut the rainforest in Ivory Coast. And I was like, how are these two things related? And why are all these scientists 
thinking that this is an adequate solution, um, it seems like the problem and the solution are, are in two separate places, and no one thinks this is this is a problem. And so um, I went around asking people, I don't understand why this is accepted. I understand the science of it, of carbon sink and all, but I didn't understand the politics of it. And so I happened to be working in our office with someone who was an anthropologist, uh, Mokisa Kitui. He later became a, a politician and then finally the head of um, the Convention on Biodiversity. But um, he, in the UN, he, um, he said, oh, if you want to understand the politics of that or get answers to your questions, study anthropology. And I had never taken an anthropology class ever. But I decided to uh, return um, to university and to um, um, try and figure out some of these questions of the politics behind property issues and uh, science. Um, this actually sounds kind of similar to uh, the last person I interviewed for this was uh, Professor Beth Rose Middleton who connected oh. environmental studies to indigenous like people studies. Uh, did you have a similar um, connection between agricultural sciences and uh, now working in the African, African-American studies? Yeah, you know, I, I was interested in land and that's one of the main connections between the two. I was interested, especially in communal land holding, so not private property, um, I guess uh, part of the, the question I had is why do we, in, in the, this issue of the politics of science or the politics of knowledge more generally, was why do we assume that uh, private property or capitalism or whatever it is, is the given and should be the given. And I was interested in places that were having increasing uh, other forms of property that weren't quite like that. And I had done a study here in Kenya on the Kenya coast uh, about inheritance of land that was held uh, by clans instead of privately. And then I had read, I don't know, in Time magazine or something about Colombia and how they were returning land and property to people who were indigenous and of African descent in um, Colombia and I thought, why, as communal property, I said, why in this moment of privatization, because this was in the 90s, um, where there was a huge movement across the world to privatize everything on earth, including, you know, state companies and things like that, um, that why, were, why was a government making a settlement that gave, uh, you know, collective ownership and not private ownership? And I was super interested in that. And Colombia had returned... Um, had said it would return a large portion of land to indigenous people, but also to black communities. And I decided to go and study this issue of collective property um, in Colombia and look at uh, black communities because I thought at the time, I, I, I didn't have a particular interest in the African diaspora as such, but I had an idea that um, people might find it easier to talk to me because I was from Africa than if I was asking indigenous people in Colombia who might think, who's this stranger? That You know, so there was a, a, a connectivity, a familiarity or something like that. And I think a lot of my understanding coming from Africa was much more framed by questions that deal with indigenous 
uh, land rights and issues. And it helped me have a different perspective onto uh, the black communities that were um, making new claims in Colombia to, to land that they had lived on for centuries but had never been actually recognized as theirs. And um, you, you've brought up not being a farmer a couple times now. What made you decide not to be a farmer? And could, you could still be. I'm not sure like on what scale you hope to be. <laughs> yes, definitely. I haven't given up hope totally. Um, I, I, at the time when I graduated, one of the hardest things, there were two things actually, it was very odd. Uh, one, no land. I didn't own any land and didn't have the money to buy. Um, of course. The second one, <laughs> the obvious part of farming. <laughs> yeah, the most important part of farming. And, you know, I had studied uh, animal sciences and with a speciality in aquaculture. I had worked for a while at a cement factory here in Kenya that also did fish farming, tilapia. Um, and um, so I'd worked there. So I'd worked in fish farming and other things, but I just, there was no, I didn't have any land. I didn't have any money to get any land. I'd wanted to work for some of the agricultural research, research in organizations then in Kenya, but they were government run. And the government said, we don't recognize your degree from the U.S., funnily enough, that I, we have never heard of the University of California, Davis at that time. And that particular part of the government, although they were other parts of the government that sponsored students in, in agriculture in Davis, but whoever was in charge of the things I applied to were not was not interested in people who didn't um, graduate locally. So I was like, okay, that's not happening. And in searching around, I worked for a while at the National Museums, and then I worked at this place, African Center for Technology Studies. And I guess I changed my mind and went into to do a master's and a PhD um, before I found my farm. When I was doing my PhD, I was working in an area where people were farmers, and miners. So it was great. It was wonderful. They were coffee farmers and they also grew a whole lot of other things, uh, yucca. And um, I was so interested in the many variety of plants and uh, animals they had. I traveled around on horse. It was fantastic in, in the countryside in Colombia. So it was really a rural uh, project. And I think a lot of uh, knowledge in farming helped, you know, have good conversations with people. Um, in my anthropology work. Later, I mean, now I'm working on uh, Nairobi as a city, so I'm looking at urban things, which is quite different. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a step up further away from my farming. Hmm. But who knows, maybe I shall return someday. That could be your, like, a retirement project or something? Exactly, exactly. Uh, what, are you, what are you currently researching in Nairobi? Well, I, I guess, what would you be in a normal time if you weren't like, <laughs> locked down and stuff? Yes, exactly. If I could make it to the archives. Yes. Um, so I am interested in long-term residents in Nairobi. Um, often African cities are thought of um, as new things. And how best to say it? They're often also thought of as... Um, a city of cities of migrants. So much, much writing on African cities has been about migrations to the city and of um, cities being mainly full of migrants. And it's very, very true that a large proportion of many cities in Africa 
are of the residents are people who have arrived in their own lifetime uh, that were not born there. And even when I was born in Nairobi, 3% of people were of the city who were there were born there. But uh, my dad was born in Nairobi and had uh, my grandfather had worked in the railways. And so um, I was interested, what about that 3%? <laughs> what about, you know, the people now, it's a much larger percent, who were born in the city they live in, and how did they see the city? And I was interested in the sort of time and space of the city through the perspective of long-term residents. Um, and also what, what that kind of did and how we understand uh, African cities, uh, Nairobi in particular, but African cities more general. And I was interested in looking at uh, neighborhoods that I worked in, that I lived in, um, uh, that I do community work in, um, to try and figure out how we might rethink uh, the way African cities have been studied to take into account both people who are, are, very, are permanent, who have aged in a city, and who are migrants. This actually reminds me and kind of uh, helps me connect the dots of a, on a story you told me one time, and I believe it was Nairobi, it could have been elsewhere, but about uh, an app like Google Maps not working there because it's more landmark-based as far as getting around. Um, is that is this part of your, your current studies? Yes, yes it is. Um, I have, uh, I'm trying to figure out exactly if I want to make it a chapter on its own or not. It's about giving directions to Uber drivers. So the everybody has a map and Google Map has mistakes as it does everywhere. You know, they have to be corrected by people, but also people don't like using it or um, use it in interesting ways. And so people give directions in Nairobi using landmarks generally. And some of those landmarks no longer exist, which is the most fun thing about it. So you give landmarks using things that used to be there, which, which when it's, it sounds crazy, <laughs> but everybody does it. And so, um, for a while there used to be, um, a cafe, near where my sister lived and it was a good easy landmark for taxi drivers or anyone else uber drivers who would come to the house and um the cafe got knocked down so people then would the the place that used to have the cafe and then after a while you know there are people who have come to nairobi who didn't know there used to be a cafe there right but it's still the place that used to have a cafe and um, so I, I'm interested in this absent landmarks being used to give direction. That's what the chapter is going to focus on. Um, to kind of change gears, uh, you've been all over the world with your, your studies. What is something surprising or really unique or special that your travels has uh, revealed to you? Um, something that taught you something about yourself, about something that just surprised you or, you know, something of that sort, I guess. Okay, huh. Um, I am endlessly surprised. One relative to my studies, because I study land and I'm particularly interested in how land moves from generation to generation or people to people, I am endlessly surprised, no matter where I go, to hear a story of a new way to steal land. To steal and to land? Me, yeah, to steal land. Okay. 
everywhere has has you know um, at least 101 ways to steal land but then you go to another place and there's 102 ways or whatever you know every place has its unique version of stealing land and so i find this i find stories about land being stolen <laughs> as quite enthralling um and very interesting because it's always a surprise um otherwise what am i surprised with i'm surprised by the fact that um, the aesthetics of clothing has endless permutations, so that people in a design or an artwork on clothing, like the way you design weaving or uh, batik or anything on clothing, um, you only have so many shapes that one can make in the world, but somehow you can combine them in such endless ways that every place looks a unique fashion. And I, I kind of love that because you think, oh my goodness, there's only squares and circles, but they're done differently here, you know? Mm -hmm. And I love to see like particular local fashions of clothing, of food, of music, of dance. Yeah. And the music, I just love music. And so, um, that's another thing I always like in different places, the, the, the possibilities, again, of endless combinations of new music, sound. Very cool. Uh, to kind of dive back in and then uh, begin wrapping up, um, everything about everything right now is heightened, uh, especially in America, uh, whether it be environmentally, socially, politically. And as we're speaking today to timestamp it a bit, we just had an inauguration that I was, I've never purposely watched an inauguration. I was on the edge of my seat, kind of nervous, scared, excited. Um, has this been a particularly challenging time to be an educator or researcher, especially in the ethnic studies? Yeah, it's been a phenomenally challenging. And um, to be an educator during the whole switch to online and catching up with um, trying to keep up with your students and technology has been a nightmare, but I think the emotional tone of two things, um, the political and social situation in the United States, a uh, combination of um, uh, police violence and um, of just the politics, um, was really draining and draining for, for um, you know, faculty personally, and then also for students. Mm -hmm. And um, I think students um, and, and staff, I mean, people were really stressed out. And so um, I found uh, a lot of the time I was spending was actually spending just talking to people and repeating to people, um, all of us are stressed out, all of us are anxious and tired, and all of us are not able to do all the things we had planned we were able to do. And give, be kind to yourself. I, mean, I, I said that so many times, be kind to yourself. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not normal times. Nothing about this is normal. And um, I think the other side was that while teaching, I had quite a number of students who felt sick or their family felt sick. And that was also super stressful 
and really hard to over virtual media to support people properly, I found. And um, uh, just the, I felt students, some students were ill, but still trying. Others, you know, uh, would let you know and, and, and you were more e easily able to help them. Um, so it was just um, a lot to juggle emotionally. And um, so that to me was the year. It was emotionally draining. I can imagine. Yeah. And then, you know, this this whole project I'm trying to do had a whole different look to it when I first imagined it. But I, I, I appreciate you adapting with me as we're doing this, you know, online across <laughs> the world. And it's been lovely talking to you as always. And uh, I hope we can catch up in the office, you know, hopefully soon. Yes, I hope so. Very soon. Um, I hope, yeah, things will, ret well, not return, but uh, <laughs> a new become... version of something better, hopefully. Yeah, I really hope, wish and hope it could be a new version of something better. I like that much more. Yes. So we hope for a better tomorrow. Yes. And definitely thank you for this uh, interview I, um, conversation. Of course. I really enjoyed it. And um, yes, I'm glad we managed to to, to coordinate times across continents.